It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Last week I taught on what it is to be overcomers, and that's such a powerful subject. I've got to continue it on this episode, and yet with a specific area of focus. Last week I talked about how overcoming is something established in the past tense for those who have been chosen of God, and you need to listen to that episode as a foundation for what I have to say this week. But this episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity is all about the 14 rewards promised to the overcomer. 14 specific things God says he plans to do for you in eternity. And this is powerful, powerful revelation, and it will bring forth a powerful transformation in us at the resurrection. Let me start with Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 in the Aramaic Bible in plain English. It says, I will grant the overcomer to sit with me in my throne just as I have overcome, and I sit with my Father on his throne. So Jesus refers to his covenant people as overcomers. I want to establish some insight into a divine personality trait right here at the start. Because I'm talking about the 14 rewards given to overcomers, first I want to emphasize that giving out rewards or rewarding his people is a passion on God's part. And it's a fundamental truth that we've got to embrace when we come to him. Because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So once you come into faith that God does exist and wants a relationship with you, the second thing to embrace, to grasp with faith, is that he intends to reward you for serving him. I would serve him just for the privilege and honor and blessing of having an intimate relationship with God. That's reward enough. In fact, he told Abraham in Genesis 15, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And so the greatest reward is just knowing God. But there are other rewards he desires to give. And it's such a passion with him that in Revelation 22, verse 12, he said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so rewarding his people is so important to God. He's not going to wait, not a day, not an hour. The moment he bursts through into this realm, he's coming with rewards. And those rewards many of those rewards will be instantaneously manifested in us. Praise God. Now, all of the rewards I'm going to share with you are from the book of the Revelation. 
The book of the Revelation is not just about terrible, ominous things that are coming in the last days. In fact, the opening of that book says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he intended to be given to his servants. So the highest aspect of what that book teaches is not the dreadful things of the last days, but the powerful things that await us in eternity. Number one, and this is from the letter to the Ephesians, Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so God is, in the last book of the Bible, taking us all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to show that restoration will come. The tree of life was the key to immortality. To eat of the tree of life was to live forever. And that's why Adam and Eve had to be exiled, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. So when God said overcomers will eat of the tree of life, I'm sure the easiest way to interpret that would be to say they achieve immortality. Now, whether or not you have to partake of some kind of literal celestial tree for all eternity to maintain immortality, that's up to question. And it could be all metaphorical. But thank God, it's God's way of saying you will live forever. But there's some hidden symbolism too, because the letter to the Ephesians was all about how they had lost their first love. They were very religious. God said, I know your works and your faith and your patience, how you've tried those who say they are apostles and are not, and you've found them liars, and you have borne and had patience, and for my name's sake you've labored and you have not fainted. Well, that sounds like a very committed, consecrated group of people. But then the resurrected Christ went on to say, yet I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. So they were religious, but they weren't apparently in love with God anymore, nor in love with his word, nor in love with his people, nor in love with the lost world outside of the body of Christ. Love was not the ruling factor in their hearts and lives anymore. And really, that's the fundamental principle of the kingdom of God that is most important. It's all about love, and love is all about relationship. See, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents religion, because religion is the main means by which people determine what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what they need to live by. And so when God told them overcomers would eat of the tree of life, I believe that was his way of saying, I'll move you away from religion into relationship. I'll move you away from rigid rules into intimacy with the creator, which is joy unspeakable. And much more could be said about that. But if you're eating of the tree of life now, you're living in a kind of lesser paradise now, certainly not the maximum manifestation of paradise that will come to this earth when Jesus returns, but your life can be heaven on earth. I meet people all the time that say, oh, hell, I'm 
in hell right now. I'm living in hell. Well, if you can live in a hellish existence on earth, you can live in a heavenly existence on earth. The second reward promised to overcomers is found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus said, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Now, faithfulness is loyalty, but it also implies a maximum amount of faith because to be faithful, switch it around, is to be full of faith. You're only loyal to something you believe in unless that loyalty is forced by some kind of threat of loss. You're really only going to be faithful to what you truly love, and love gives birth to faith. All right? Faith works by love, the Bible says. Be faithful unto death. In other words, no matter what you have to go through, what kind of death-dealing attacks come against you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or even martyrdom at its extreme, if death came to you that way, if you're faithful to the very end, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a crown of life. Well, a crown represents dominion, authority, victory, and triumph. And so to be crowned with life is to be crowned with the victorious authority that will bring you forth from this life of degradation and temptation and tribulation into that life of ecstasy beyond description. See, those who receive the crown of life have overcome its opposite. They've overcome death. To be crowned with glory is to overcome vanity. To be crowned with tender mercies is to overcome what should have been judgment to you. And so whatever you're crowned with implies that you've overcome the opposite. The word translated life there is the Greek word zoe, which means divine life. It's not natural life. That's suke, P-S-U-C-H-E. Divine life is zoe, Z-O-E. So if you're crowned with life, that's also, to me, a picture of being adorned with the very life of God, divine life, so radiant in the glorified state that you'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. There'll be no more death-dealing attitudes like depression and discouragement and fear and doubt because God will wipe all tears from your eyes. You'll be crowned with life. And life means all the positive aspects of the character of God too. Much more could be said about that. In Revelation 2.11, also to the church in Smyrna, Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? I could do a program just on that, and I may do that one day. What is the second death? It's only mentioned four times in the Bible, and all of those times are in the book of Revelation. If you go to Revelation 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. What is the second death? All right. Uh, 
Revelation 20 verse 14 talks about the end of the millennial era where Jesus reigns on this planet. And it said at the very end, then death and hell, or some versions translated Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. So death and hell ultimately are cast into the lake of fire, which is eternal. And that's the second death. So the second death is not the death of the soul when a person dies and the physical body dies and also the soul passes on to a terrible state of separation from God after death. That's not the second death yet. It's not the second death until death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And then also Revelation 21.8 warns the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars that they will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But the good news is overcomers will not be under the authority or the power or hurt by the second death. Thank God you're in a safe zone if you're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, a message to the church in Pergamum. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Now, the manna, of course, was the bread that came down from heaven that sustained them in a wilderness that should have killed them. This world is a wilderness, and it should kill every one of us. But we have a Father in heaven who didn't give us a stone for bread. He didn't give us just a rigid stone of religion. He gave us the bread of his living word. He's fed us with the truth. But what is this hidden manna? I know when the manna came down from heaven and fell in the wilderness area and the children of Israel gathered it six days a week, it was something natural that met their natural, it was supernatural rather, and it met their natural need for food but it represented spiritual bread. There was only one type of manna, though, that was hidden to the children of Israel. You could walk outside the camp and see the manna all around the camp, laying on the ground. Everyone could see it. Anyone could see it. But there was a certain portion of the manna that was hidden. Normally, the manna would spoil if it was kept overnight. But there was one container of manna that never spoiled. And it was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant in a golden bowl. No one ever saw it. And it was the manna that lasted. Eternal truths. Not just truths that help you on your journey through this life. But truths that are eternal and beyond the ability of the human mind to fully comprehend. Eye has not seen nor ear heard. Neither has entered into the heart of man. The things God has prepared for those who love him. That's the hidden manna. And it will sustain you not only for time, but for eternity. The word of the Lord that will guide you from this realm to the next. The hidden manna is the deeper revelation of the word of God. Most people just know surface stories. They know about David killing Goliath and Noah building the ark. But there's a deeper revelation in the word of God that overcomers partake of. The hidden manna. And that's now and in the world to come. Next, 
Also in Revelation 2.17 to the church at Pergamum, Jesus said, He that overcomes, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Think of that. Well, you'll have a new name in heaven that everyone will know you by, but apparently you'll have a name that only God speaks when you're alone with him. And I'm sure God will spend alone time with every one of us, just him and you walking through the expanses of the universe. Can you imagine? I can only imagine. But what is this white stone and a new name inscribed or engraved in that stone? What does that mean? Well, I've heard two plausible possible stories. For instance, I've heard that in ancient days, if you were tried in a court on a certain crime, and you were found innocent, you would be given a stone, a white stone with your name engraved in it that proved your innocence. I've also heard that in the Olympic Games, if you won an Olympic game, you were given a white stone with your name engraved in it, and it entitled you to the best that could be provided to you in your city, the city of your habitation. You would be given the best home, the best provisions in every area of life so that your life would be supremely blessed. That could be the possible interpretation that God is saying, because your name's engraved, it's not written where it can be smudged out, it's engraved in that stone. And it's his way of saying, forevermore, you're going to have the best that New Jerusalem can provide. And your innocence is proven forever no longer guilty in the sight of God. I receive that, don't you? Next, to the church at Thyatira, the sixth reward promised to overcomers. God said, he who overcomes and keeps my work until the end, to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my father. That almost sounds violent and vicious, doesn't it? Where God said, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, keeps my works until the end. You're a working believer. You're not just on the receiving end. To him will I give power over the nations. So see, this world is going to become a theocracy. It's no longer going to be filled with different kinds of governmental structures or political structures. There'll be no more democracies or dictatorships or monarchies. It's going to be a theocracy where the king of kings will rule and we will be subordinate kings reigning with him, with power over the nation. But what did he mean when he said we would rule them with a rod of iron? Don't you think that means that God's laws will be enforced where there will be no rebellion tolerated in the world. You'll rule with a rod of iron, but it doesn't mean a kind of forced submission and obedience, but something birthed out of love. But why did he say the rod of iron would be given to us so that we could dash to pieces the nations like a potter's vessel? That used to bother me. And then he said, as I have also received from my father. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about a prophecy in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. 
It's a messianic psalm where it's as if the Lord Jesus uh, is hearing the voice of the Father, and the Father says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That sounds horrid. That sounds horrible. That sounds torturous. What does that mean? I prayed about it many years ago, and God gave me the answer. It's not talking about dashing people to pieces. It's talking about dashing cultural containers, because that's what every nation is. Every nation with its rules and laws and religious persuasions and philosophical leanings an educational system, and the things it emphasizes or doesn't emphasize is like a cultural container. And all the cultural containers, whether it's the United States of America, a free nation, or a communistic nation like China, they're all flawed, terribly flawed. And when the coming kingdom is put in place, we will dash those flawed cultures to pieces and in their place will be a container of the glory of God, the culture of the kingdom of God. That's quite amazing to me. And uh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see, when the world is made into a pristine paradise again, where the culture is correct. There's no cultural wars going on because the culture is correct. Number seven, the seventh of 14 rewards promised to the overcomer. And I'm going to end with this one because, well, I feel like I need to reserve the rest of them till next week. Let's continue this on next week. But I love this one, Revelation chapter 2, verse 28. To the church at Thyatira, the resurrected Christ said, He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end... Of course, he said, I'll give him power over the nations. But then the latter part of that sentence, he said, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why would he add that statement? Because you have to have a spiritual ear to understand these kinds of statements. How can God give us the morning star? What does he mean by giving us the morning star? Well, actually, the morning star is not a star. Well, it looks like a star, and it's always been referred to as a star. But it's really a planet. It's the second planet from the sun. The first one is Mercury. The second one is Venus. And strangely, even though Mercury is much closer to the sun than Venus, Venus is the hottest planet. It's like 500 degrees Fahrenheit. It would melt iron on the surface of that planet. Think of that. Why is it so hot? Because there's a cloud covering around the planet that also acts as a reflector. That's why it's so bright. And Venus, or the morning star, is the last star you see when the sun's rising and all the other stars fade from view, there's still one that keeps shining and is like a herald bringing in the dawning of the new day. And that's Venus, the planet Venus. 
So what did he mean by saying, I will give the overcomer the morning star? I believe that's God's way of saying, I will give you the dawning of a new day. The night's going to be over. The darkness of the pain of this life is going to be over. Sickness and disease, disappointment, heartache, all the negatives we've faced here and all the horrible things human beings have gone through. If they've become covenantally connected to God, they've got a morning star, a hope for tomorrow. He is the bright and morning star. It's not just a hope. It's the one we have hope in. Because in Revelation chapter 22, he said, I am the bright and the morning star. In fact, that's one of the last ways he identified himself in the Bible. It was his way of saying, heaven is not really what your ultimate goal is. I'm your ultimate goal. I am the thing that shines brightest in your sky. But see, it's also the, the, the shining ball of light in the sky right when night is falling. Before any of the other stars can be seen, you can see Venus. Not only is it the morning star, it's the evening star. And so as we pass into the darkness of the last days, we who know him know that there will be light taking us in and light bringing us out. We have the morning star We know him also as the evening star, and we know that the one who started a work in us will finish a work in us, and so we can rejoice in that. And just like the light of the sun reflects off of Venus, so the light of the Father reflects off the Son of God and enlightens our lives on our journey. These are just seven of the rewards promised to the overcomer. I've rejoiced to share them with you, and I hope it's spoken to your heart, and I hope it's warmed your heart with the hope and the expectation that only God can give. Next week, I'll also continue this this series on our calling to be overcomers with the revelation of the final seven rewards given to the overcomers. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shree's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.